Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello. 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 What's happening today, Gary? Well, today, Pete, we're going to uh, feature Hougamont. Hougamont. Now, this follows on from our uh, uh, Mammoth Waterloo podcasts of last year, which Don't I think remember it. Uh, we, we ended up doing three podcasts and, and we didn't have time to fit in Hougamont. Not much. So no. we, uh, we decided we'd do it separately. Weird. Good, that is. So where have we left it? Where, where are we up to? Uh, it's, uh, in a sense, it's the third day of the battle. Well, it's, 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 it's the big Battle of Waterloo on the 18th of June. Uh, so you set the scene for us. In that well, way. Uh, in a mi- oh, no, I can't say that word. In that usual fashion of yours. How do you say in a minute? In a minute. In a minute. Yes. Um, so you'd had, uh, you'd had Quattro Bras. On the 16th, uh, you'd had the Battle of Ligny, where the French had uh, given Blücher and the Prussians uh, a real good thrashing, frankly, yeah. uh, such that uh, Napoleon thought that the, the, the Prussians were a spent force and he didn't have to worry about them anymore. He thought they were out of, out of commission for at least two days, really, wasn't it? Yeah. He did. And uh, Wellington and, and the Allied troops, because, uh, again, we, we explained they're not British troops, the Allied troops had fallen back to Mont-Saint-Jean, uh, which was around about 11 miles from Brussels and was an area that he'd identified 12 months previously uh, as where he, he thought he would make a stand uh, and, and defend a position should Napoleon uh, uh, move into Belgium. So they've fallen back from Catrebras to uh, and, and sort of rendezvoused the Allies uh, on the, on the, uh, the, the, that, the, 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 that ridge. Uh, uh, the Prussians are determined to come and help, aren't they? Um, well, Blücher had made a promise. Uh, he had promised Wellington 50,000 troops, and he intended to keep that promise. Napoleon thought that the Prussians would move eastward, and in fact, that's in ta- exactly what he was trying to do. Uh, he dispatched Grouchy to, to, to keep the Prussians eastward, uh, but Blücher, Blücher was determined to move northwards, and in fact did. He's a real hero of ours, isn't he? Now, so what? What? Like the, so let's talk about water. We have to do a little bit of scene setting. So, what are the? Uh, we'll do this very quickly. What are the overall plans? So, what's, so Napoleon thinks the Prussians are out of it for at least two days. So, is, what's his plan? Is it, is it a cautious, uh, careful plan? No, he, he he had a number of um, 
uh, generals who were warning him about Wellington's skills and, and the quality of the British infantry, particularly in defence, because they had experience of them from the peninsula. And the King's German Legion. And uh, uh, a lot of the German troops were also good infantry, weren't they? They were, they were very good infantry. Now, there, there were some, shall we say, less good troops there as well. But, but on the whole, the British and the Allies were going to be good in defence. Napoleon only wanted to start early, he wanted to start around six o'clock in the morning, but the 17th of June, the weather was terrible. It, it persistently rained. It was wet. It was wet. The ground conditions made the movement of artillery difficult, and it also meant that the cannonballs would be much less effective because the whole idea was to bounce the boing, boing. into, into the, the ranks of infantry, and it wouldn't bounce that well on sodden ground. So it was postponed originally. But that, it, yeah, but I think there's other, in, in some ways, more real reasons. I think uh, the, 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 there was a lack of urgency. I think some troops were engaged in looting. Some of the French troops were engaged in looting. Uh, they were too far back. There was lots of things, you know, that, that that's not really... There was no... They just don't get on with it, do they, quick enough? No, I mean, orders are, are not issued until 11 o'clock. Um, so what's he planning? Well, he, he's planning to attack straight down either side of the uh, uh, the main Brussels road, straight up to the centre of the British. Um, Heading towards the village of Waterloo. We've walked up that road, haven't we? We have, yeah. Um, he, he created the Grand Battery. This was typically uh, Napoleon uh, in the sense that it was a, a tactic of concentrating his artillery He's an artillery power. general. Absolutely. And it was aimed at forcing through the centre of the Allied line to Elm Tree Crossroads. So Derlon's first corps would go in right of that road and the second corps in conjunction left of the road. And initially, it doesn't matter, the, sort of the orders don't mention Hougamont, do they? Uh, they, they, they? They were going to be followed up by the 6th Corps, the Cavalry Division, the Imperial Guard, and it's all just a bit of a crude, brutal, concentrated punch through the centre, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not subtle at all, but I don't think Napoleon thought that he needed subtlety. He, he was going to smash the British. Application of power. Absolutely. Now, he changed his plans and he begins to bring in Hougamont. And who's going to attack at Hougamont? Well, it, the plans are for Ryle's second corps to begin the attack on Hougamont. And it, everybody presumes that that's going to be a diversion, um, with the exception of probably the Prince of... Uh, sorry, um, Jerome, Jerome, his, his brother. Um, and there are reasons why it sort of escalates. But, but the idea would have been a feint to that left uh, for Napoleon. It, it was identified by Wellington as a, 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 an area that he had to protect. He'd in fact dispatched some 10 to 20,000 troops, I think, to uh, protect that flanking position. Um, um, to a place uh, called Hal. Oh, yeah, they, they weren't in the battle at all, in fact. Yeah, he, his right flank he was worried about. Yeah, that's beyond Dugamore, yeah. Now, Wellington, let's talk about his orders. They're, they're fairly simple orders as well, aren't they, really? They're going to occupy the Mont Saint-Jean uh, Ridge um, and, uh, and the advanced posts. We'll come back to that and just see what Napoleon would do, I think. Uh, that's a big part of it. And he all the time he's anticipating what you said. The, he anticipates, he trusts Blucher to turn up on his le on, uh, on, on the left flank at some stage. Um, so yeah, so his, his intention is, is to, to be 
in a defensive position and to hold on until the Prussians arrive. It's not much more than that. The uh, Montsant Jean itself, it's, uh, uh, it's got two slopes, a forward slope and a rear slope. So most of his troops are not visible because they're on that rear slope. And the idea is just to hold on. And in front, he's got his artillery well forward, funnily enough, uh, with two-thirds of his batteries covering the western section. They can fire between Hougamont and La Haye-Saint. What I'd call, the, well, the, the, between the road and Hougamont, basically, isn't it? Uh, and they were told not to get caught up on counter-battery fire. Now, well, let's talk about Hougamont then. What, there's, there's three of the advanced posts you mentioned, aren't there? What, what, what are the three posts, then? So there's Hougamont, La Haye-Saint and Papillot Farms. Now, La Haye Saint's on the road, the Brussels road. It is, and Papillot's to its, well, if you're on Wellington's East. side, it's going to be to its, to to its, its left. left. Yeah. Would it be to Napoleon's right then? Uh, yes. Or eastwards, if we're really being complex, I think. Absolutely. Now, the idea was that they acted to break up frontal attacks, and it's a bit like a breakwater. I keep imagining water smashing against these things. And and he he wanted to keep a personal close eye himself on the defence of Hougamont. Um, arguably, he neglected La Haye Saint. That'll be next year's special. That'll be next year's special. But he, he appreciated the importance of Hougamont. Now, tell me a bit about Hougamont, because you've looked into this a bit more than I have. Uh, we've both been both been on that yep. fantastic trip with Historians Do Drink, a fine, t fine body of men and women. Well, yes, when they're doing... Yes. And not drinking. <laughs> yes. Well, it, it, yeah, Hougamont was a property that, uh, you know, had had a fairly quiet existence for uh, several hundred years. It was acquired in 1661 by a family called Arizola de Onata. Uh, and it was occupied by that family for 130 years. In 1815, it was owned by a Chevalier de Louisville. He was then 86 years old. And he didn't actually live there. He That's lived even in, older than me. He lived in Nivelle. And uh, Hougamont was let to a tenant farmer called Antoine de Monceau. The chateau itself was unoccupied at this time, or indeed unfurnished. Oh, what was it? And to come on, what's get, what, what does Hougamont mean? Because you looked it up. Well, the, you, you don't want to tell me, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm insisting. Well, the, the, uh, it was, it's been given a number of names over the years. Um, but it's it's thought to come from goo, meaning sap from the trees, um, and then mm. I'm assuming that it, it's sort of uh, been changed over the years to goo mount mount goo, so a mounting of goo, Pete. Yeah, not bad. A now, huge mounting. Well, of goo. Now we're going to put a plan up for this, and uh, we're not going. But this isn't the sort of a podcast is a, a visual. Uh, it's not a visual medium. So we're just going to say it's a, a natural strong point of fortified farm buildings and uh, uh, it, uh, with uh, walls around it. It's got a couple of gates, a north gate, a south gate. It's got a, a, a garden, a formal garden to the uh, east. It's got a large orchard east of that, surrounded by thick hedges. Uh, and uh, it, 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 there's a thousand yards, would you say, between that and La Haye Saint? Yeah, now it's offered lethal flanking fire on any attacks on Main Ridge, Ridge, which squeezed the gap to just about six or 700 yards. But if the French captured it, it would offer them a firm base for attacks on the ridge. So it is important, uh, whatever, yeah. Now, uh, it's one of the things that are often forgotten is it's covered by artillery fire. We mentioned already a lot of, the, of uh, Wellington's batteries were on the Main Ridge. 
Um, now, the, so, so the attack starts. Now, this is meant to be a, a, for Napoleon, it's a limited attack. It's a feint to draw in Wellington's reserves, but it quickly becomes a battle within a battle. And we, I don't think from now on we mention the rest of the battle. It's all about Hougoumont as a battle within a battle. It's like a play within a play, Gary. Yeah, and Jerome, we mentioned him earlier, Napoleon's brother, he, he becomes embroiled in a full-scale attack with his 6th Division. And as, you know, Rail fails to stop him. But you've made the point previously, Napoleon failed to make Rail stop him. It's, it's a lack of command and control. <coughs> and actually, Napoleon, throughout this battle, I, I think a lot of people think... Uh, failed to uh, control his generals, uh, whether it was for health reasons or because he was overconfident or, or because he was having a bad day at the office. Um, right, so um, um, now, uh, so when did they occupy? Well, around uh, around 1800 on the 17th, that's the day before. Splooshy, sploosh, sploosh is your description, Yeah, I believe. terrible weather. General Cook, commanding the 1st Division, was ordered to send the light companies from his guards battalion to occupy Hougoumont and prepare it for defence. Now, uh, so who is that? That's the, the company's under the overall command of Lieutenant Colonel James MacDonald of the Coldstream Guard. Now, I've got to say that the ranks that the guards have are just a bloody nightmare. And uh, I think <laughs> people like you and me, this isn't our period, our subject. We don't pretend to be subject experts. And I cannot bloody follow the ranks within the guards. Captain and Well, Colonel. they had two ranks. Ah, bollocks. A load of uh, but there's also bosses. the fact that guardsmen are privates as well, which is also slightly confusing because oh, no, obviously they didn't become guardsmen until much, my, much later. In the First World War, they first were privates. Mm. <laughs> now, and so they, they arrive around. Uh, so the companies get down in and start taking up positions around Hougoumont at about an hour later, wasn't it? About, yeah, it's about seven o'clock. Uh, uh, it's not far away, is it? We walk down from the ridge. It's you know, it's a, a few minute walk, and amongst them is a chap called Private Matthew Clay of the Third Foot Guards, which I think became the Scots Guards. Uh, I'll get letters of complaint if it isn't. Uh, well, you're you're going to read a quote by Private I Matthew am. Clay. I am. I am. I am. It's quite a long one, isn't it? And this is what he says. I quickly joined my company, who were extended along the upper side of the orchard in a shallow ditch, sheltered by a high, bushy hedgerow which separated us from the enemy, who were close at hand. The weather still continuing very stormy and had become very cold, from which we suffered much during the night as we remained in our position and without food, we having been deprived of our rations, which did not arrive early enough to be distributed amongst us at the time of our sudden retreat from the woods. That's uh, he's talking about Catabra. Uh, there, uh, we were kept, we were kept continually on the alert, having frequently been visited by a field officer, that's Lord Saltoon, uh, during the darkness of the night, and who invariably asked some questions and received answers from one or other as he rode past in the rear of our line within the hedgerow enclosing the orchard. He just repeated himself a bit, this chap. Anyway, when daylight appeared, all being quiet on Sunday on the Sunday morning, we procured some fuel from the farm of Hougoumont, and I believe you're going to have a point about this, and then lighted fires and warmed ourselves, our limbs being very much cramped, sitting on the side of the wet ditch the whole of the night. Do you, do you think they complained? No, not never complain. Soldiers don't, Soldiers do never complain. Now, the point I wanted to make is uh, when we did the podcast previously, um, we identified that at La Haye Saint, the soldiers uh, burnt the doors that they might actually need to uh, bar the enemy from entering um, because they weren't controlled by the NCOs and, and the officers. Uh, clearly at Hougoumont, um, it, it's not the case. 
but it, it does beg the question of uh, uh, what they used for their fires. Yes. Now, uh, when uh, some of the guardsmen went into the chateau, you know, the formal garden that we mentioned yep. earlier, uh, they saw temptation before them, Gary. Temptation in the succulent form of ripe cherries. I can't stand cherries. And this is <laughs> Private Richard McLawrence of the Second Coldstream Guards. What are you going to say? You scoundrels, roared out Major James MacDonnell. If I survive this day, I'll punish you all. Before the close of the murderous struggle, how few of the cherry stealers were left for punishment in this world. Oh, I'm glad to see you're resisting the temptation to do ridiculous accents, Gary. Well, We've well, had a being, lot of complaints. Being Scottish, I can't do the Scottish accent. Of course not. I noticed he'd gone cockney halfway through. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I, McDonald's given a lot of credit, isn't he, for working, you know, working hard overnight, getting, getting various things sorted out. Um, do you think that's what happened? Do you think he worked hard? Well, no, but he made sure that others did. Um, you know, so, so fire steps of stone or wood were constructed to allow them to fire over the six foot high wall uh, to fire stepping back under cover so they, uh, and then they can reload. They, so, so they're protected all the time. Really. So they could step off the fire step and then get back up. And that was on the wall facing a wood. There's a 30 foot gap is there between this wall yeah so that's uh, facing southwards it that, was anticipated that the french would come from the south and they indeed did and that's along uh, the uh, the uh, the side that, that uh, uh, the southern edge the southern thank you that yes and it goes along the um, the orchard and the garden yeah the garden wall. now loopholes loopholes were also gouged out of the wall uh, with the help of some engineers which were sent across from La Haye Saint. Yes, um, from that, where? La Haye Saint. Now, that's that's a matter of some controversy a bit later. Is that the place that doesn't have any loopholes? That's holes? the place that doesn't have any loopholes, yes. Um, uh, but there's something else about La Haye Saint that the next the words I think you're going to say, uh, what else uh, What else does McDonnell make sure is done? Well, the, the south gate's barricaded internally with heavy logs. Uh, they don't take it off and burn it. That's it. But there's something else that they didn't do at La Haye Saint properly. Well, they, they, they get stockpiles of ammunition. That's it. The north gate's left free. Now, that's because it allows easy access for reinforcements and resupply. That was a problem at La Haye Saint. It was. But the ammunition... Uh, you see, the thing about La Haye Saint is that the people in charge were brave officers. They did brilliantly well in the fighting. They didn't do that well the night before. No, and they did have ammunition problems throughout the day. They did. Uh, not helped by the fact that a lot of them had Baker rifles there. Now, um, so that, that's, that's the prayer. Now, I, I think even the officers suffer that night. And who am I going to be? You're going to be Ensign Charles Lake of the Third Guards. The rain was incessant during the night, and I shall never forget my friend, the, the Honourable Captain Forbes, whose servant had forgotten his cloak asking for a corner of my large one to lay under. <laughs> Poor fellow. It was his last sleep, for he was shot through the breast early on the morning of the 18th, and hereby hangs a romantic tale, he being struck on that part of the breast on which hung the miniature of the lady to whom he was engaged, and with whom I have often seen him dance at the Brussels balls. It's not that romantic, is it? It's more no. sort of sad. <laughs> well, no. Now, no. Wellington, he visits uh, Hougamont twice before the battle, um, and he issues orders personally to those who had overall command at Hougamont. And he also arranged for reinforcements 
and he sent explicit instructions via staff officers throughout the battle. Now, initially, you've got the two light companies of the 2nd Guards Brigade, that's under McDonnell, and they occupy, initially, not when it starts, they initially occupy the farm complex and the walled gardens. And then there's the light companies of the 1st Guards Brigade under Lord Salter, and they're in the orchard and wood. However, early that morning, the Prince of Orange intervenes. Now, he's... He's not quite as bad as Sharp Beck's out, but he, he doesn't help at times. And he sends some reinforcements. Uh, now, who are they, Gary? Well, he sends the first company of the, the Hanoverian Field Jaegers. Uh, that's about 100 uh, men. Uh, uh, a company's 100, isn't it? Uh, yeah. In those days. Uh, the Lunenburg Hanover Battalion of 100 Rifles. I'm looking forward to you saying the next one. Grubenhagen oh. Hanover Battalions, also of 100 well Rifles. Done. Now, these 300 men... Uh, took up station in the orchard. And then something else happens. At nine o'clock, they send up the 1st, 2nd Nassau Regiment. Germans, I think. German, yes, of course. Uh, they're commanded by Major Busgen. Busgen. I, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. It's, uh, you, you knew, It's got you? umlaut, so I would say Busgen. That's it, yeah. And that's 800 men in six companies. And uh, this is, you're going to be Captain Moritz Busgen. Um, what, what have you got to say for yourself? The farm and garden were unoccupied. A company of Brunswick Jäger stood on the furthest edge of the wood. A battalion of English guards of the Coldstream Regiment, under the command of Colonel MacDonnell, was partly deployed behind the farm. I immediately undertook the dispositions I deemed necessary for the defence. The Grenadier Company I stationed in the buildings and two companies in the adjoining vegetable garden. I placed one company behind the hedge of the orchard. The Voltigers moved into line with the previously mentioned Brunswick Jäger and one company served these as a reserve being placed at some distance to their rear. Now, it's interesting because uh, I think, is it Matthew Adkin? What's the name of that book that I really like? The Waterloo Companion. Um, yes, Adkin. Uh, and, and he makes the point that at the start of the battle, there probably wasn't a single... Uh, guardsmen inside the buildings it had been taken over by a, a variety of german troops uh and uh, but it's interesting that some of busgen's men aren't particularly uh, enamored of what's going on and this i'm going to be private johan Leon, leonhard of the nassau and he says this on arrival we noticed that this big farm was surrounded by a wall <laughs> the doors were open one could see the freshly broken loopholes in the walls ha I thought to myself, here you'll settle, but leave near more. Oh, he's got he's Scottish. Scottish. <laughs> Good night, world. Oh, you can't take it seriously sometimes. <laughs> the farm was now occupied at the greatest speed by us Nassauers. Now, I think this is crucial to understand because this misunderstanding of Waterloo, the, the idea that only the guards defended Hukuma, that, that, that it was the British, or some people, English army, it's not. The British is a small proportion of it, and the Germans played an enormous role in, in particularly the defence of places like Hougoumont and, uh, and La Haye-Seine, and they played a huge role in the battle before you get to the Prussians, who, of course, in many ways, made sure we won the battle. So that's really interesting. Now, what happens... So, the Nassauers replace it. What happens to Sultan? Well, Sultan's been sent back to the ridge with his two light companies, and en route... He bumps into Wellington. This is a cock-up, isn't it? Yeah, Wellington's completely unaware of his withdrawal, and he orders him to halt where he is. However, 
Hearing nothing further, he, he eventually continues to rejoin his brigade. Now, part of the light company of the Coldstream Guards, they continue to hold the buildings of the lower courtyard and they defend the north gate. And at that's this point. quite, that's not quite in accordance with Adkin. Uh, you know, uh, uh, one thing I want to make clear is I'm not sure people know exactly what happened at times. And if you, re if you think of the nature of the battle and the fact that people get killed, I don't. Th I think there is a, so, an element of confusion about some of these. Well, there's uh, also the fact that we give times to things. The timings are not at, at, in the least sure. Uh, I think Wellington refers to the the action starting at ten o'clock. Well, um, Matthew Adkin, uh, is it Adkin or Atkin? It is Adkin. He he. We've gone with his timings, uh, but I have seen other timings that are almost as convincing. And I want to make it clear that we're not we're not we're not pinning any colours to any masts here, are we? Now, so um, um, all right, let's go on. So at the moment, there are some cult some cult guards around just behind and in the gardens mainly in the sours inside the buildings and also there are more germans in the woods in front and more nassauers in the woods in front in the you know the wood that's gone yeah um, it's not there now but no. it was considerable at the time it was over 300 yards i think but it wasn't thickly wooded. no no not it, thick but, but enough to large. stop Enough to stop cannonballs. It was large, yeah. Now, 11.20, and this is where the point is, the, the French batteries opened fire. And uh, this is uh, one of the advantages of Huguenot. Now, this is, you're going to be Lieutenant Colonel Francis Home, or is it Hume? Home. Home. I'm just wondering whether how you pronounce it, but you know they don't can't pronounce their words, posh people. Grenadier Company, Second Battalion, Third Foot Guards. Now, um, you must be very posh, then. Uh, thank you, thank you. I feel numbered. <laughs> um, you're going to be you're this now. This he's talk, He's not talking about this moment in it, but what he's talking about is a general thing. It possessed some important advantages for defence. It could not easily be touched by cannon, and the wood protected it in front and on its right flank. They could not bring guns to bear on it without coming close to the edge of the ridge and exposing themselves to our artillery. This, in a great degree, saved it. Many common shot and grape fell in my direction and perforated the walls in every part, but these reasons prevented it from being steady or effective. Now, uh, so Napoleon orders, uh, and it's Lieutenant General Prince Jerome, you've talked about him before, and his 6th Division, that's 5,500 men. Uh, what, what is the around uh, thing? About uh, 1,500 at About most. 1,500, yeah. Um, and it's a diversion. Now, it's important to realise that the big damage, a lot of early damage is caused by the Allied guns on the ridge. And again, uh, the, we're going to use the Lieutenant Colonel Francis Home uh, to, to sort of illustrate this because he, he gives the idea. Uh, if you could read us this quote in your lovely posh accent. The first shot that was He's fired... slightly German sounding. The first shot that was fired on the 18th was by the English and from the guns in front of the right of our centre. It was exactly half past eleven and it was directed against a large column of the enemy which had formed at the distance of about 1,200 yards and was advancing against Hougamont. There were 15 guns, nine powders on that spot and the effect from them even at that distance was tremendous. Large openings were instantly formed in the column into which almost every shot fell. Before the guns could be relayed, it had halted and retired under rising ground for shelter, thus breaking the order of this first attack. Lord Wellington, observed me say our guns were so well served, replied, very pretty practice indeed. Now, this is classic, because uh, was by the English. 
from the guns. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But, well, we're now going to have a quote from me. And who am I? Because I can't pronounce his name. Well, it, amongst the gunners were the German, uh, the King's German Legion. And now, it's an allied battle. You've made that point. And this is Major A. Simpfer of the Horse Artillery, King's German Legion. And what does he say, Pete? A strong column of enemy infantry moved towards Hougamont. As soon as it was within effective firing range, our artillery covered it with such a powerful fire of ball and shrapnel that it fell into disorder several times and retreated. But it always formed up again and finally moved to its left behind Hougamont, where it could no longer be observed by us. It then renewed its attack against Hougamont and was able to seize the area outside the walls. Now, that's a sort of running ahead. But the point remains, it's not just English guns fire or British guns. Uh, it, no, it's most definitely an Allied army. Now, the French skirmishers are moving in front of the big columns uh, and they're moving in front of... Uh, it's uh, General Badouin's 1st uh, Brigade, 6th Division. And they, what do they do to the Nassau and Hanoverian troops in the wood? Well, they very slowly force them back... Uh, and at first they penetrate the wood, then they get into the orchard, and then they push them across the sunken road, which runs along its northern boundary. Oh, that, right that far back. That's naughty, because that road, if they get control of that, it cuts them off. Now, th this is, uh, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to be, uh, Cap you're going to be Captain, Mo or is it me? No, it's me, and I'm going to be Captain Moritz Buskin of the 1st, 2nd Nassau Regiment. And he says... This deployment was barely completed when at 11 o'clock in the morning, the enemy began his attack on the wood with a heavy cannonade with shell and case shot. Swarms of trailers then pressed forward, supported by formed troop bodies, and after tenacious resistance of the three companies posted there, pushed these back towards the farm and the gardens. Closely pursued by the enemy, the retiring troops fell back, partly to the right around the buildings, partly to the left between the garden wall and the hedge of the orchard, into the orchard. Kept back by the murderous fire directed at close quarters at the enemy from buildings, garden wall and the orchard hedge, he was put to flight at great loss by the combined attack of the already mentioned English guards battalions who had moved into the orchard and who pursued him into the wood. Now by this time Lord Salton's been ordered back, he's been recalled back there again. I mean he's up and down quite a bit during this battle and at about 12.15 he needs a successful attack and retakes the orchard. Now it's crucial that they get that sunken road at the back of the orchard but also the orchard generally they need to retake. Uh, now it's at this point that one of the great features of the battle starts to develop and this is as the, the French, what are the French trying to do Gary? Well they're trying to push through the wood across that 30 yard gap that you mentioned earlier to the south garden and orchard wall but they're getting mown down in huge numbers. This is rightly named a killing ground. And I remember that the, the wood's gone but they, do you remember Gary there's just a tree or is it one tree or two trees Yeah there's there? two or three trees I think. And and I remember standing and looking, you can still see, and it's a great place to visit and to just, you look at that and you can imagine trying to get across that on the heavy fire. Oh, wow, it's just a great place to visit. And I'm going to be Private Johann Lenhard again, Nassau Regiment. He seems to have cheered up a bit and he goes, <laughs> an unfortunate first phrase, which I hadn't noticed was awaiting me, <laughs> a shower of balls. That's what some people call us, isn't it? I think it's the most common description of our uh, podcast, uh, that we loosed off on the French was so terrible that the grass in front was soon covered 
with French corpses. Now, now it's, you, you want to say something well, more worth, about this. Well, yeah, it's worth bearing in mind that the, the, the wood was about 350 yards deep by about 280 yards wide. Now, this run down the valley from where Raoul's corps was assembled. But between the north edge of that wood and the walls of Hougamon was a gap of about 30 yards, as we've said. It's open ground. Now, this it's it's a tremendous obstacle to the French because of the murderous fire that's directed at them, not only from the uh, the buildings, but also from the loopholes, from the walls, from the hedges. It is an absolute slaughter. Now they try time and time again, Pete. They, some of them get to the wall and they try to grab the muskets. How, old, how tall is the wall? It's too tall to climb. Oh, yeah, you need I, help, don't you? You've got to have two people. You've got to stand on another man to get over that wall. You couldn't climb it without any help. And, people and, are shooting and if there are two men working together, they're going to be shot and they're going to be bayoneted as they reach the top. Now, General Boudouin, who you mentioned earlier, he's actually killed in the fighting in the wood. There's quite a few general, generals killed at, uh, the, in the Battle of Waterloo, isn't there? That's one, uh, General Boudouin, yeah, absolutely. Now, that's sort of the first attack. About 12.30, Jerome orders in his second brigade of 6th Division. 6th Division is his fourth, and this is under General Soy. And where are they attacking? They're coming the same way, aren't They're they? They're coming the same way. They're going to attack through, through the, the wood. wood. Uh, and the remnants of Baldwin's 1st Brigade uh, edged towards uh, the, the west face of Hulgamon to attack there. So that's, uh, to, to what, uh, looking from Wellington's perspective, the right-hand side. The right-hand side, yes. So the, the opposite side from the orchard, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Now, uh, so, so, the, so by this time, uh, the light companies of the 3rd Foot Guards and the Coldstream Guards, about 150 men, they're outside on this western side. Yep. Um, and what happens to them as this this whole bloody brigade come... Uh, well, sorry, no, the remnants of Baldwin's brigade come at them. Well, they're slowly driven back from the kitchen garden. Fighting. Fighting, absolutely. And uh, they look to retreat along the path outside the west wall and actually get through the north gate we've into walked, the courtyard. We've walked around there. We've walked on that path, or where it is, and the north gate, of course, is... is it's open, as we mentioned. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of dramatic incidents here. They're, they're pursued by some of the first uh, light regiment, Laguerre regiment, uh, commanded by Colonel Cubiers. And Colonel Cubiers has a, a, a bit of a, a mishap, doesn't he? Well, in a, in a sort of dramatic incident, 33-year-old Sergeant Ralph Fraser of the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Garms, armed with a pipe. Now, that's interesting because one of the things Adkin points out is they didn't have halberds. No, but he, uh, but no, I mean in the but but it's it's one of the things people always say it was with a pike, but he shouldn't have had one. So what what was he armed with? And the answer is we don't we don't know. know. But he he did most definitely clash with Cubier outside the wall of the Great Barn. Whams, get whams. Well, Fraser gets the better of the tassel, and ah. the tassel even, and um, he evades the <laughs> colonel's sword. <laughs> Not tassels. Yes. And he wounds him. He then grabs his horse, the colonel's horse, and escapes through the gate. That's quite dramatic, isn't it? Uh, so the gate's open when he goes through it. Yeah, but what? when the French get there, they find it closed but not secured. Ah, so the crossbeam, the big crossbeam's not down. Uh, again, there's some... I'm not pretending that there isn't controversy about this. Uh, who's leading the attack? It's a, it's a real figure, a, you know, a real dramatic there's heroes on both sides yeah crucial to understand this it's not just british or nassau heroes the french have their heroes so who's the hero here 
Well, oh. it's a, the huge figure of uh, a Sioux Lieutenant Legros, who was known as L'Enforceur, or the Smasher. Now, he takes a pioneer's axe. He was and, a good-looking lad, then. Yeah, and he forces his way into the courtyard. Now, MacDonald's at hand, and he shouts for help in closing the gates. And uh, one of the, uh, the the three officers and six men that helps him is the aforementioned Fraser. And in a scene of desperate hand-to-hand fighting, they he leads this small band of, of officers and men, whilst others cover them to stop more French breaking in, and they heave shut the gate and drop the crossbar. This is a dramatic thing, and, and isn't Wellington supposed to have said... That, that, the, battle the whole battle turned on the closing of those gates. Exaggeration, but one of those exaggerations that nevertheless has a, a little bit of point to it, hasn't it? Now, you're going to be uh, uh, Private Richard McLaurence of the Second uh, Coldstream Guards. Your Scottish heritage will doubtless come out here. The French broke into the courtyard, and such a scene of bandit work I never before or since beheld. It was fairly a trial of strength. The French grenadiers were not to be trifled with, and we looked like so many butchers, red with gore, or rather like so many demons rioting against fire, for the shells had set two haystacks in a blaze, and many a poor fellow lay bleeding and wounded. Being unable to get out of the way, was burnt to death. Shut the courtyard gates, roared out our Sergeant Major Fraser, and keep them out. And a rush was instantly made to the gates. The French out and the guards within. Life and death was in the struggle, but English physical strength overcame the French ardour and the gates were closed by the powerful shoulders of Major MacDonald and the giant of the Sergeant Major with as many of ours as could get to them. That is, uh, I mean, to me, this is one of the great exciting stories. Uh, I mean, yeah, people are dying. Uh, just to, we, we sometimes talk about echoes of the past. In a way, we, it's not, it's, it's the echoes from the future because of course things haven't happened but that that whole burning thing reminds me of at Gallipoli when the fields catch fire yeah. and the wounded are lying in the fields and no one can get to them and help them and they just burn to death and their, their cartridges go off uh, now um, what now, happens to Legros? he's the big hero well, here Legros and his men they're, they're soon shot or hacked down frankly uh, after the gate is closed behind them and the courtyard's a real mess and, and by mess, you can imagine what I mean there, Pete. Ooh. Now, you're going to be Ensign Standen again of the Third Foot Guards. The whole of the barn and cart house were in flames. During the confusion, three or four officers' horses rushed out into the yard from the barn and in a minute or two rushed back into the flames and were burnt. I mention this as I had always heard horses would never leave fire. Perhaps some beam or large piece of wood fell and astonished them. And uh, it's, it's all so dramatic. Um, Absolutely. Now, shortly afterwards, uh, with the French beaten back, the North Gate was reopened because and in come some of the third foot guards who had been trapped outside. The, as long as the French aren't round it, the gate is meant to be open. That's right, isn't it, Gary? Because it is a communication channel. That's how people get in. Absolutely. And if Hugemon was to fall, that's the escape route. Of course. Now, uh, amongst the ones who come in from the third foot guards is Private Matthew Clay. 
at least as far as we can gather from his account. And he says this, On entering the courtyard, I saw the doors, or rather gates, were riddled with shot holes. It was also very wet and dirty. In its entrance lay many dead bodies of the enemy, one I particularly noticed, which appeared to have been a French officer. That might have been Le Grome, hasn't it? Well, uh, we don't know that, though. But Sorry, I'm leaving us leaving astray. But they were scarcely indistinguishable, being to all appearance as though they had been very much trodden upon and covered with mud. On gaining the interior, I saw Lieutenant Colonel MacDonald carrying a large piece of wood or trunk of a tree in his arms, one of his cheeks marked with blood. His charger lay bleeding within a short distance, with, with which he was hastening to secure the gates against a renewed attack of the enemy, which was most vigorously repulsed. So the gates had clearly been shut and open, depending on situation. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, a bit, you've got to control the gates. And the French realised this as well. That's why it's so important to them. Now, by this time, reinforcements are on their way. And in all, six companies of the 2nd Battalion Coldstream Guards, who are commanded by Colonel Woodford, arrived and counter-attacked. Now, the French around the North Gate and, and West Side are dispersed as a result. So that's about six companies, 600 men. And it's interesting because Woodford is senior to MacDonald but allows MacDonald to continue to stay in command, which is quite unusual in the British Army, which makes a bit of a fetish about seniority. There are so many sodding colonels in the Guards that it just gets out of hand. There's quite a lot in um, uh, other regiments as well. <laughs> one, Gary, one. <laughs> right. Now, by the yeah, so they've the third major tax launched by Jerome. What time's that at about? We're, again, we yeah. I mean, we're we're going. We're with not around, pinning our colours on this particularly much. It's are we? around thirteen fifteen, and th this time it's the first brigade of General Foy's ninth division. Ah, so this isn't Jerome's mob. This is somebody no, else's mob uh, pushing into the southeast side of the orchard. Now, if they could get through and capture the sunken lane, then Hougamont would be cut off from the main ridge, and that would allow the French to fire into the formal garden from the rear hedge, uh, because there's no wall there. Now, that's interesting. Yeah, that's very much. So he's not coming straight at the wall. He's sort of coming from just slightly to the, to the well, as you said, from the southeast. Yeah. So uh, he's coming at an angle, and that's so that the wall doesn't come into play. But they're getting fired at then. And they also drag a howitzer to the northeast corner of the wood, and they're shelling the buildings from close range. Now, that made me wonder, because that's only a matter of... That's not many that's, yards. That's very close. How does that work with a howitzer? I don't think it does. I think it's too close. Well, I was interested by that, but th there's perceived to be a threat, and Saltoon tries to attack it. Remember, Saltoon's in the back, in the back orchard. Uh, and he, he's very badly outnumbered and, and has to abandon the attempt. And Saltoon and the Hano Hanoverians are forced back. Now, at times, by the way, during this fighting, you'll see accounts, people like whom, Home disparage the contribution of the Hanoverians and Nassauers. This is based on nothing more than prejudice, as far as I can see from everything I've read. To me, uh, all the people in this battle are fighting to the very best of their abilities. Uh, so uh, so uh, what happens then? Then, So they fought their... The, uh, who, who arrives to save the day? Because this is, it's just like uh, when you order things in a supermarket just in time. Who arrives just in time this time? Well, it's two companies of the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Foot Guards, who are commanded by Colonel Francis Hepburn. They arrive to hurl back the French with heavy losses 
from the orchard. Now that's cleared again around about 1445. So time's drifting past. Uh, so that, 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 I mean, we've just, uh, that we've dealt with a, a lot of fighting going on there, isn't there really? Absolutely. But, but uh, we've, we've dealt with it quickly because that's the way it, 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 isn't it funny, even just doing a small thing like Hougamont and there isn't time for much detail. It, the, the, these battles are so big. Now what happens next? Well, 1500, the second brigade of fifth division move across to make an attack from the southeast, but they never get anywhere near it. And some people don't really count this. That's broken up. The attack fails. It's broken up by cannon fire, isn't it? Yeah, uh, that's that's coming from the ridge, isn't it? So, so they never that's actually coming from engage the, the French ridge. Yeah, they, yeah. they're coming diagonally. Well, they're basically coming across almost from um, La Haye Saint. They're coming from a. They basically it's a ridiculous attack, and it's broken up. Um, now we want to make uh, we want to keep make some general points here, and I think you particularly would be keen to make some of these points. Let, let's talk about some things that are happening. Well, you've got the big set piece attacks that we've we've discussed, but the whole time the French Voltigers. They're, they're sniping away all the time. Um, now, although the farm's largely hidden from view from the south, as we mentioned, by the wood, it is under fire from horse artillery, which is stationed near the Nivelle Road. Now, the Nivelle Road is sort of parallel with the Brussels Road, uh, but way over to the, uh, to the, oh God, I struggle with this sometimes, west. Yes. Uh, and, and yeah, there's a... Now, what you, you say horse artillery, are these big, massive shells? No, 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 no. And, they're smaller-calibre um, rounds, and, and they, they bounce, causing little damage to solid walls that, you know, they, they're just not going to do They could have done with bigger guns. They could have done. Uh, now, now, the, now we, we, we need to go into another hero of the, of the whole battle. Uh, between around... And this is definitely vague, and, and there's, there's, there's a lot of doubts about when it, it it definitely seems to have happened but between 1500 and 1600 um although they'd had those ammunition stocks the fighting was so intense what begins to happen well they're running short and and this next part is in homage to our good friend jim maynard oh was he in the royal army service corps he he was uh RCT, was he i think right yeah right yes uh now captain horace seymour who's the aide-de-camp to uh, Lord Uxbridge, he's made aware that they're running short of musket ammunition. So he rides back and he finds a private, great rank, of the wagon train in charge of, of, of an ammunition cart. Now, to this man's credit, the, the wagoner drives his wagon forward to Hougamont under heavy fire and got through to relieve the situation. Now, he's a hero, isn't he? I mean... Uh, there's many types of heroism, but under heavy fire, can you dodge when you're dry, leading a wagon cart? No, no. I, I suppose you could zigzag, but it'd be every three miles. Not on that road. That uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I'm thinking of that road down from the hill. So he's a real hero. And some books, uh, in fact, I think the um, that what's the name of the battleground Europe? I think they they identify a name there. I'm not sure about that name, and I don't think other people are. And rather than give the wrong name, we'll just say. Whoever he was, he did a fantastic, brave thing. He was a credit to his regiment and and, uh, and a credit to Jim Maynard. Uh, <laughs> the rest of you don't know who Jim Maynard is, but we do. Yes, <laughs> and, and he makes great points of, of mentioning the wagoner whenever we see him. 
Yeah, he does. Now, uh, so what's happening now? Um, there's other units, so some of the guards have moved forward. Other units are moving forward to them. Uh, that then, uh, you know, there's, uh, the the first brigade of King's German Legion started edging onto the forward slopes to the rear of the orchard to support them. There's things happening, isn't there, during the whole thing? We haven't got time for it, and it gets too complicated. But then the next big thing is the French artillery between. And again, all we're going to do is say, and this gives you the idea what. How specific are we going to be with the timings on this? Well, it was between 1500 and 1600. Would we pin our flags to those times? No. <laughs> so what do the French do? They change tactics a bit, don't they? Yeah, they start to use uh, more howitzers and, and uh, they're employed to fire the uh, carcass projectiles into the farm. These are inflammable. Uh, they're basically incendiaries, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And soon the roofs of the great barn and the chateau are actually ablaze. And uh, you're going to be uh, the rather posh Lieutenant Colonel Francis Home uh, of 2nd, 3rd Foot Guards. Some shot or shells falling amid the stables of the chateau set them and the straw bales on fire. It burst out in an instant in every quarter with an amazing flame and smoke. The confusion at the time was great and many men burned to death or suffocated by the smoke. Now, uh, this was seen by Wellington. And one of the fascinating things is he wrote... He sent a message. It's so specific. Uh, and it, it's really ridiculously detailed for a man who's actually in charge of the whole day. But he wrote it also on ass's skin, which apparently you could wipe clear. But it's nice to think you... Oh, an ass. <laughs> I misread that one. <laughs> now, I'm presented with a problem because I'm going to be the Duke of Wellington. You've got a temptation. And I've got a temptation in terms of What's accent. your most annoying accent that the public have never had the chance to hear? Uh, the Duke of Westminster. Well, can we have you as the Duke of Westminster impersonating the Duke of Wellington? Illy, I see that the fire has communicated from the A-stack to the roof of the chateau. You must, however, still keep your men in those parts to which the fire does not reach. Take care that no men are lost by the falling in of the roof or floors. After they have fallen in, occupy the walls inside of the garden, particularly if it should be possible for the enemy to pass through the embers in the inside of the house. That was wonderful. I, I, the Duke I, of Westminster does actually speak like that. He does, yes. Now, I uh, so does uh, so do a lot of other people, according to you. Now, uh, let's let's. What do you think it's like as a scene at this time of the battle? I mean, what's it going to be like in the Hougamore complex? I right, mean, right. So it's not going to take a great deal of imagination, but imagine the flames, <gasps> the smoke. <gasps> The screams <coughs> of the burning wounded. Oh, oh no, that's not. Funny. And the shrill neighing of the horses. Yeah. Now, by this time, our friend Matthew Clay, he's in the burning chateau. Well, I'll tell you. And when you when I read this, you'll hear that Lieutenant Goff. The I wonder if he's related. That's a, They're I'm, all related. That's a private joke between <laughs> me and Gary. Um, 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 I want you to notice that uh, he doesn't exactly follow Wellington's instructions, does he? Because he says, you've perished by an airplane. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Matthew Clay says this. I, being now told off with others under Lieutenant Goff of the Coldstream Guards, was posted in an upper room of the chateau. 
Now that's you said that was abandoned. I funny enough hadn't really realised that, but it's it's still a building, of course. It being situated higher than the surrounding buildings, we were <laughs> we annoyed the enemy's skirmishers from the window, which the enemy observing threw their shells amongst us and set the building on fire. We were defending. Our officer placing himself at the entrance of the apartment would not permit anyone to quit his post until our position became hopeless and too perilous to remain, fully expecting the floor to sink with us every moment. And in our escape, several of us were more or less injured. Uh, I think that's really, you know, it, uh, just imagine this young second lieutenant, well, no, he was an ensign, was he? Lieutenant. Can you just imagine him saying, you stay there, lads. And they wouldn't have complained. They'd have just said, OK, sir. Yeah. No, well, I've never really heard of a, a, a British Army person complaining. Never complain. No. Now. Who are you now? For a moment, disaster's looming. It is, and, isn't it? And uh, I'm going to be Captain Moritz Busken again of the 1st, 2nd Nassau Regiment. The enemy was now, for the third time, made a rash attack, which was mainly directed at the buildings. Aided by the smoke and flames, his grenadiers forced their way into the upper courtyard through a small side door. They were, however, driven out again by the fire from the building windows and the advance through the lower gate and courtyard of a detachment of the already mentioned English battalion. Some intruders were taken prisoner, but seven of our grenadiers were also captured by the enemy during this action. Now, this is classic because I originally always thought this meant the other, the Northgate action. But I'm persuaded by, uh, is it Gareth Glover, who's written several things, who's done a lot of work on Matthew Clay. And he connects this with the Matthew Clay business. Because Matthew Clay identifies a, a small, small break in. That's Dur the issue, small. Not, not like the Legro one. This is during the, uh, the fire. And, and uh, Gareth Glover, these people are in a different world from us. He has identified this as a separate occasion. And Matthew Clay says this, The enemy's artillery having forced the upper gates, a party of them rushed in who were as quickly driven back, no one being left inside but a drummer boy without his drum, whom I lodged in a stable or outhouse. Many of the wounded of both armies were arranged side by side, having no means of carrying them to a place of greater safety. The upper gates... Being again made secure, a man killed in this action by the name of Philpot and myself were posted under the archway for its defence. The enemy's artillery still continuing their fire. Now this, I mean, Glover's case is quite, quite convincing to me. But again, we would not pin our... There, there are lots of confusions. This drummer boy crops up everywhere. Uh, he crops up at La Haye Saint in, uh, in uh, Sharp's arse. Uh, what's that called? Sharp's Waterloo. Yeah, and I mean, Clay asserts that the west door had been forced and at least a dozen Frenchmen had entered the barn and they find their way into the courtyard. Now, it's that, now that the legendary, the legendary <laughs> drummer boy is being spared. Ratatata. Oh, he didn't have his drum there, did he? So he couldn't have been ratatata. Now, nearly every building's burnt except the gardener's house on the sudden face and the small chapel which is attached to the chateau. And once more, you're going to be ensign Standen of the Third Foot Guards. The anecdote of the fire burning only to the foot of the cross is perfectly true, which in so superstitious a company made a great sensation. Wow. <laughs> Now, the Nassau Regiment, they're often ignored in British accounts, as you've mentioned, but they were certainly there, and a lot of them saw more than their fill of fighting that day. And once more, you're going to give us a quote from Private Johann Leonard of the Nassau Regiment. And yeah, there's, I want you to remember, uh, people at home say the Nassau's ran away in the first attack. They did not. Some may have done, 
but most of them didn't. And this is uh, Leonhard. He says this. The fifth attack, we've no, I've no idea which one that is. The fifth attack that the French launched against the Hougoumont farm was beyond description. The hornbeam trees of the garden alley underneath which we stood were raised by the immense cannonade as if mown down. And so were the beautiful tall trees along the outside of the farm. Walls were collapsing from both the heavy bombardment or from the th severe thunderstorm that raged above us, the likes of which I have never experienced before. One could not distinguish one from the other. The sky seemed to have been changed into an ocean of fire. All of the farm's buildings were aflame. The soil beneath my feet began to shake and tremble and large fissures opened up before my very eyes. Now, he's gone over the top, well over the top. I'm not sure about the thunderstorm, are you? But what I mean is, does that not give you an idea of just uh, how dramatic it was and how they're overwhelmed, some of them, by just how incredibly it all is. Now, the struggle goes on into the early evening. As you've mentioned earlier, it's a battle within a battle. And as the French cavalry make their doomed charges... That's over to the, on the, uh, between, the, uh, between the farms of La Haye Saint and, yep. uh, and Hougouin. Still, the fighting rages. But it gets less and less. And, and already, I mean, you know, we've come out of time a little bit there. Where the, to, to, the pressure's lessening. The Prussians are arriving. They're fighting at Plants Noir. An amazing battle. Can't wait to visit Plants Noir with you and other friends and, and really get to grips with that part of Waterloo. Um, and uh, and then the, the, the home, the Imperial, the Home Guard. The Home, home Guard. guard. <laughs> the Home Guard are definitely defeated by this time, aren't they? And uh, the other no, lesser body, the Imperial Guard. Yeah, and then there's the general advance of the Allied army from about uh, twenty hundred hours. So uh, it, it's suddenly all over at that point. So Hugomont's held. It's never, it's never lost. Not unlike La Haye Saint, which is lost. Uh, now you mentioned it earlier, earlier, but the Allied force defending Hugomont originally one thousand two hundred men, but probably never exceeding two thousand six hundred troops had something like another 3,000 in support, but they eroded the strength of some 12,500 French troops of Royal's Corps. That's not bad. And it's worth it. None of these figures are, are, are written in stone or whatever. Uh, it's a, I was it's just odd. reading that from a lump of stone. Well, well, it's a lovely lump of stone. It'll be used in another manner once this podcast is finished. Um, so uh, five to one, five to one-ish, something yeah. like that. Uh, remembering that attacking troops, that's probably not... In, you know, it's not quite as much as it might seem. Um, what proportion a, of French infantry, what proportion of Allied infantry? Well, that's, that's a really good point, Peter. That's, that's around about 23% of the French infantry and only about 5% of the Allied army. Aftermath's dead everywhere. They reckon, and I'm not going to, again, they reckon up to 5,000 French dead. The British lost about 600 dead. Uh, Batfield, terrible place. Uh, soldiers got other things on their mind and you know they they just never complained they never do and this is private matthew clay not complaining and you're going to read his quote on again going into the yard it being evening and perceiving a clear glowing fire rising from the ruins of a stable or some other outhouse i took the opportunity of cooking the remaining portion of pork which i'd stowed away in my haversack it was actually a bit of half burnt head of pit of, of, of pig and having placed it upon the fire and quietly awaited its being cooked, discovered that the glow of fire arose from the half-consumed body of some party who had fallen in the contest. Oh. <laughs> My meat, which was unsavoury in the morning, became much more so by its redressing. Oh, God. <laughs> 
having now found a little veal in a cooking pot hanging over a small fire, in other words, somebody smothered with dust and fragments of the broken ruins, but sufficiently cooked, I most gladly partook of it. But he never complained. He never complained. Now, on the 19th of June, there's a terrible scene surrounding them, and uh, Clay goes on to say this, Pete. Having again joined the remainder of my party, we proceeded up the wood some distance, which was thickly strewn with the bodies of the slain, many of our comrades being of the number. The heaps of the enemy slain laying about the exterior of the farm showed the deadly effect of our fire from within, and on passing near to the site of the circular stack, I found that it had been totally destroyed by the enemy's fire, and also that many of our comrades had fallen near the spot, and apparently entire apparently entire, but on touching them, found them completely dried up by the heat. He means they, they go to dust because they they burnt to a You crisp. were being very posh there, weren't you? No, for, I don't know. And anyway, next day, they bivouac near uh, uh, Nivelle. It's just in a field outside Nivelle. And Clay says this, Now came the time for the, re- for the distribution of rations. <laughs> Camp kettles, all in requisition. A general cooking along the hedgerows. The issue of rations, liquor. <laughs> and buzz of congratulating interchanges taking place with men of different companies, with their townsmen and old acquaintances, sitting or reclining on the ground, each listening to the narrative of his comrade, having been separated from each other during the contest. Had any of our inquiring friends in England been present in this said field, in which was our bivouac, they would have listened with a deepest interest to the tales that were told on the night of the 19th of June. June 1815. So basically, old soldiers just telling the tale. And then he came at me with his banner, but I still had a round up the spout. <laughs> but I missed him, and luckily, this other bloke bailed at him. <laughs> that kind of story. <laughs> right, what's next? Well, there's a there's a civilian visitor visits the battlefield uh, just afterwards, and he left an impression of what it's like. Now, this is uh, Mr. John Scott, and he said, The buildings of Hougamon were infinitely more shattered than even those at La Haye Saint. In one single spot, 50 dead bodies lay close together where they fell. Near this, there was a black scorched place where 600 human corpses found in the grounds were collected and burned. Fire had been set to the buildings and the whole place seemed to have been the theatre of a supernatural mischievous celebration of infernal rites. Wow. Well, there we go. So that's the story of Hougamont. It, it's been fascinating. I can't wait to go there again. I presume you're of like mind, Gary. Yeah, and what I would say is, apart from uh, Lion Hill, which was raised in the 1820s as a monument to the Prince of Orange, um, the battlefield's largely unchanged, although, of course, it's lower because the, the uh, earth taken to the build rigid, that. The ridges, yeah. Uh, and it's possible to work out the dispositions of both the French and Allied troops and to follow the events of the day. And you never know, Pete, you may even stand exactly where Wellington or Napoleon stood. Well, it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. I mean, Hougamore has been a pleasure to research and a pleasure to do. Yes, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I'd like to thank you. And I'm going to be nice to you for the next several weeks. Hooray! Cheers, Cheers, Pete. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it